Greetings and welcome to another episode of Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, Algonquin Park oral history author and storyteller. As you know, I've written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park. In this first of two episodes, I'm going to share historical insights and stories into the legal and illegal trapping of fur-bearing animals in Algonquin Park during the first 50 or so years of the park's existence. Known to all as trapping if it's legal or poaching if it's not, these activities have in Canada a rich and colorful past. But before I begin, I first want to give a huge shout out to my friend and colleague Rory, from whose book Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, I have referenced extensively. The amount of research he has done over the last 40 years about both the history and the archaeology of Algonquin is incredible. Published by and available through the Friends of Algonquin Park, Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other is a must-have publication and reference book for anyone with a passion for Algonquin Park. I've also included contributions from many other well-known Algonquin authors and personalities, including Ralph Bice, Joe Lavallee, Jack Gervais, Stuart Eady, Emmett Chartrain, Audelyn Addison, who was Mark Robinson's daughter, Eleanor Moody Wright, and of course Audrey Saunders, the author of the first history of Algonquin Park called The Algonquin Story. To set the stage, as I think every Canadian knows, Canada's early history was shaped by the pursuit of the beaver, by fur traders who were constantly looking for new trapping grounds to feed Europe's desire for fashionable felt hats. Often beaver pelts were the currency that was used in barter for equipment or supplies between European settlers and indigenous peoples. Though trapping had begun in the early 1600s with Etienne Brulé, known to have traded fur from the Algonquin near Georgian Bay in 1611, the first major Ontario law regulating fur-bearing animals wasn't enacted until 1860. More than a form of currency, beaver were important because the work that they did in building dams that raised water levels made traveling very much easier on small rivers and streams. As Ralph Bice, Algonquin guide, writer, trapper, and Kearney-based personality said in his book Along the Trail with Ralph Bice, there is no wild animal that has contributed more to the Canadian economy than the beaver. It has shown that it can survive and increase under the most adverse conditions. It is also one of the few, if not the only, well-known animal that is found in all ten provinces. In addition to beaver, the area that became Algonquin Park was and is home to marten, fisher, mink, otter, and the occasional lynx, all of which were prized for the quality of their pelts. Mink would often leave little piles of clamshells on rocks or shoals to signal their presence. Martin were very shy, but at the same time very curious, and liked to climb trees. They were readily trapped in dense pine forests. Fisher, also known as Sable, the largest of the weasel tribe, next to the wolverine, were usually found only when wolves were present, because they liked to feed on downed wolf prey. As with any ecosystem, fur-bearing populations waxed and waned over the decades, as is in the case with other large animals in the park. For example, when I was a young child over 50 years ago, deer were plentiful along Highway 60 and moose a rare sight. Today, the opposite is true. There are, of course, all kinds of interesting theories as to why this is so and likely will be a topic for a future podcast. Before the creation of the park, much of Algonquin area was the traditional trapping ground of indigenous peoples and every nearby settler bush community. A reserve was established in 1873 at Golden Lake to the east of the park from which the Algonquins were based. 
One of the local settler communities was Halliburton, to the south of the park where the Bice family was originally based. For most community members, farming in the summer, trapping in the spring and fall, and working for logging operations in the winter was their cycle of life. As early as 1870-71, Ralph Bice's grandfather Isaac allegedly had a trapping cabin on Rosebarry Lake, which he reached after many days' travel by water. It's important to understand that in the 1870s, much of the Halliburton-Muskoka-Algonquin Park area was still wilderness, only accessible by canoe. Though loggers were working their way westward through the area by mid-century, cutting mostly large white pine, their winter roads were temporary. However, settlers were clearing lands not far away. In the 1870s, the end of the rail line was at Severn Bridge, located about halfway between Orillia and Gravenhurst in Muskoka. The Huntsville area had just been settled by Mr. Hunt in 1869 and wasn't easily reachable by water until 1877 and not by rail until 1885. On the east side of the park, the Opiongo Colonization Road was surveyed in the 1850s from Farrell's Landing on the Ottawa River to Lake Opiongo, although it never was opened up as a road that far west. Settlers along the survey route were few and far between, although there were some villages. For example, in the Madawaska area, the 1871 census recorded nearly 400 residents and 84 households. Most men worked in the lumber camps, although there were a few farmers that supplied the lumber camp operations with necessities, such as oats, potatoes, and butter. One family, Alexander Oram, with his wife Matilda and three children, Julia, Matilda, and John Henry, farmed in the late 1870s, early 80s, just west of Victoria Lake. Another, Ferdinand Offray, with wife Philemon, raised six children and with the help of a horse and 44 head of cattle, cultivated five acres southeast of Victoria Lake. According to the 1871 census, he produced 100 bushels of oats, 200 bushels of potatoes on half an acre, six pounds of butter, and had 23 cords of wood cut. By the way, a fun read about what homesteading was like in the Lake of Bays area at that time is called The Reluctant Pioneer, How I Survived Five Years in the Canadian Bush by Thomas Osborne. But back to our main story. While traveling with others from the Halliburton area, Isaac Bice is said to have met an injured Indigenous person whom he helped nurse back to health. In return, he was advised that the country up what was then called the Pine River was a good trapping area. Isaac, against the advice of his friends due to its remoteness, decided to check the area out. He worked his way up what is now called the Tim River to Rosebarry Lake. He liked it so much that he built a log cabin and camped there. Ralph's father, Fred, was born in 1881, and his first trip to the Algonquin area was in 1888. By then, many Halliburton trappers were trapping in the area. Together, they would go as far as Big Trout Lake and then split up to set their separate trap lines from there. One year, Fred was hired to shoot deer for a lumber camp that was situated on the east end of Long Lake. There weren't many deer that year, as there had been two very heavy winters previously. Fred also had a trap line of his own farther down on the east side of Big Trout Lake, which he cultivated for many, many years. In August of 1893, Algonquin National Park was established by the Ontario government as a protected park and wildlife sanctuary that would be withdrawn from sale, settlement, and occupancy. 
In the act that set aside the park, one of the objectives was to exclude trespassers and poachers, with the intention being that the park would remain a preserve for game such as moose, deer, otter, and other fur-bearing animals. Little, if any, consideration was given to those already using the land. Indigenous and settler trappers were now prohibited from their traditional use of the area. At that time, Canadians were starting to become aware that nature wasn't infinite or superabundant. Upper-middle-class sportsmen were starting to get anxious about protecting game and fish for their own pursuit and created many private fish and game clubs and hunting lodges in order to do so. For example, Edson Chamberlain, general manager for the Canada Atlantic Railway, and Edward Curtis Smith, president of the Central Vermont Railway and later the governor of Vermont, bought nearly 25,000 acres of land around nearby Victoria Lake in the late 1890s to use as their own private hunting preserve. Given these contrasting and potentially conflicting developments in their own backyard, it's not surprising that many locals felt very strongly that the formation of the park was an encroachment on their hard-earned privileges and that their means of earning a living was now being cut off from them. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, notices were made of linen which were nailed around the boundaries of the new park to inform people of its presence. Letters were sent to Halliburton and the indigenous trappers advising them that they were no longer permitted to trap in the new park. Suggestions were made that they just trap somewhere else. They were advised to have all of their traps and belongings out of the park by the 1st of October, 1893. Nothing was done to provide any sort of compensation. They were just told to leave. Not surprising, the Halliburton trappers were not pleased. Some didn't know what to do with their traps that were already in the woods, so they ignored the new rules. It didn't take long for illegal trapping to start and the new park officials to respond. As Ralph Bice shared, My grandfather had just gotten to his camp when Dan Ross, one of the early rangers, came along. He informed grandfather that he could not trap and had to take his traps and leave. I don't know how far he went, but he did take his outfit and moved out. For years we sort of bragged that our grandfather was the first poacher apprehended in Algonquin Park. Having said that, He also, according to Ralph, apparently continued trapping in the park under the radar until at least 1912. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, under the Algonquin National Park Act, park rangers were given the power and authority to patrol and detect trespassers and to arrest poachers. If thought necessary, rangers could search the packs and other belongings of a person, especially if the rangers suspected them to be a trapper. Premier Oliver Mowat and other officials were warned of the trappers' dissatisfaction at the setting aside of the land for the park, but didn't respond in a meaningful way. After a few years, it became apparent that the presence of rangers did indeed make a difference in animal populations. The protected reserve was having its intended impact, and certain species flourished. As Park Superintendent Peter Thompson noted in his 1894 annual report, In July 1893, there were few signs of beaver, but we have become aware of at least 60 locations where they can be found at the end of 1894. In 1900, Park Superintendent George Bartlett wrote that Ranger Sawyer, who had trapped for years over this section before it became a park, states that beaver have more than trebled in number since the park was established. In 1904, he reported that the park was alive with deer, and two years later, reported in 1906 that otter, mink, fisher, and marten were numerous. This led to what in hindsight seemed to be a misguided decision. 
In 1908, it was decided that park rangers were to trap the surplus for the government. This was in addition to the permission park rangers already had to kill one deer and 15 grouse for food each year and to hunt in an emergency. And if all of this wasn't bad enough, government promises to increase the wolf bounty when deer hunting license fees were raised never materialized. To no one's surprise, none of this was well received. Even as late as 1931, the then park superintendent, Frank McDougall, wrote that this practice of government hunting had resulted in a great amount of bad feeling. This bad feeling permeated local communities for decades and in some cases lifetimes. According to Gerald Killen, who wrote extensively about the history of Ontario's provincial park system in his book Protected Places, park superintendent George Bartlett took a utilitarian approach to park management. Bartlett's intent was to balance recreational activity with revenue-producing commercial interests while still protecting the park watershed and preserving its essential wildness. He encouraged the trapping of surplus beaver, generating nearly $3,000 in 1911, growing to $15,000 in revenue in the 1920. He even went so far as to encourage the government to consider legislating the trapping of fur bearers, especially beaver, under the supervision of the superintendent when they reached nuisance levels. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, in one of his reports, Bartlett estimated that the beaver population was increasing by five to 10,000 per year, and that the culling of a thousand a year was sustainable. This would also help the park be more self-supporting if rangers trapped beaver and other fur bearers, he wrote. It wasn't until 1920 when a drop in market prices after World War I caused the practice to be stopped, because the income gain did not justify the amount of criticism that the rangers received. The other issue was that in order to do this trapping, it took a great deal of time for the rangers to check the traps, skin the animals, and stretch the hides. This left much less time for patrolling and other park maintenance tasks. As reported in Audelin Addison's book, Early Days in Algonquin Park, one spring it took four rangers in two canoes five days to travel from Cedar Lake to the railroad. Their baggage consisted of 205 beaver skins, five mink, seven marten, 12 muskrats, and one fisher, all trapped during the winter of 1910-11. According to Algonquin Park, a place like no other, by 1915 the return of the beaver was so successful that Jim Bartlett, the son of Superintendent George Bartlett, developed a live beaver trap so that beaver could be trapped and shipped to other parks and wild released in other locations. According to Bernard Wicksteed in his book Joe Lavalli and the Paleface, the trap was made of chain mesh, something like the old chain mail, except that the meshes were two or three inches across. The mesh was fitted into a steel frame, and when closed, it took on much the same shape as a Gladstone bag. When open, the whole thing would lie flat and would be placed on a beaver runway near the water with a bunch of freshly cut alder, poplar, or birch twigs just beyond it. The beaver would come ashore, see the twigs, and investigate. When it stepped on the spring of the trap, there was a loud rattle of chains, and there the beaver would be neatly packed in the Gladstone bag, ready for taking away. For those unaware, according to Wikipedia, a Gladstone bag is a small portmanteau, suitcase built over a rigid frame, which can separate into two equal sections. Unlike a suitcase, a Gladstone bag is deeper in proportion to its length, and is named after William Gladstone, the four-time Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. 
1920, over 50 beaver were trapped and shipped to destinations in the United States. Discussions were held to add mink and marten to the types of fur-bearing animals available. Later in the decade, live animals were sent to the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto to be part of the Department of Lands and Forests exhibit. Of course, to no one's surprise, from time to time some of the rangers would start trapping and fur selling for their own profit, and as a result, over the years, there was more than one ranger who was fired because of selling furs. Sometimes former poachers were recruited as park rangers, the idea being, according to authorities at the time, that a fellow ex-poacher would be better able to ascertain the ways and means of their fellow poachers and therefore be better able to at catching or stopping their activities. Rangers Jim Sawyer and Stuart Eady were both cases in point. As Stuart Eady shared in Rock Lake Station Settlement Stories from 1896, as a young man, he and one or more of his brothers would venture into Algonquin Park to do a little illegal trapping. One year they got caught, and after a thorough talking to, Stuart, instead of being taken off to jail in Pembroke, was offered a job as a park ranger. Throughout his long career, Edie caught and brought to justice in Pembroke over a hundred trappers. In winter, Edie patrolled for poachers with his dog team, sometimes accompanied by one or more of his sons. Patrolling was arduous, and as park ranger Mark Robinson noted in 1923, 255 miles of park border to patrol, 120 miles of railroad to watch, and a staff of only 35 across 28 townships and nine half-townships was an impossible task. In 1917, towards the end of World War I, meat became scarce. The Ontario government decided to harvest some of the overabundant deer in Algonquin Park, hoping to relieve some of the food shortages in the cities. Park rangers and some locals were selected to carry out the plan. The overabundance was a result of a series of forest fires in previous years that had created many acres of meadow and grasses. When one was traveling on marshy streams or near marshes on lakes, deer could be seen in numbers any time of the day. The deer hunting program lasted from early November until well after Christmas and was done mostly along the railroad. Park Superintendent Bartlett's Christmas report in 1918 indicated that 650 deer had been shot, with the meat shipped to Toronto and other southern cities. During the hunt, selected people who lived in the area were permitted to participate, and according to Ralph Bice, rifles and ammunition were supplied. What is also interesting is the size of the deer. According to Ralph Bice, in the well-hunted areas at that time, deer of 225 or even 250 pounds were not that uncommon. I'm presuming, of course, that in later years the size of deer must have been substantially less. Jack Gervais, who was a car caretaker at the Highland Inn at the time before he joined the park ranger staff, allegedly killed over a hundred in the vicinity of the park headquarters. One of his daily tasks was to deliver supplies and people to the Grand Trunk Railway's Minnesing and Nominee Lodges on Smoke and Burt Island Lakes, respectively. According to Ralph Bice, He'd hitch up the team of horses to the Democrat, which was a kind of wagon, in the morning, drive into Minasing, then drive into Nominegan. He would then feed his horses and drive back. He'd kill three to four deer every day and would just throw them in the back of the wagon. There was, though, some potential danger in deer hunting. As Ralph Bice shared, My dad and I were hired to participate in the 1917 deer hunt. One day we were hunting between McIntosh and Timberwolf Lake. 
It was my turn to chase, and I raised up two nice deer, both of whom headed in the right direction. I heard a few shots, and I was told that Dad had two deer down. He told me where one was, and I attended to the necessary throat cutting. When I got close, he said that the other deer was just a there in a little hollow. He put down his rifle and went over to the deer, a large buck. Just as he grabbed it by the antler to turn it over, it rose up, reached out a foot, and with one motion slapped Dad across the shoulders and knocked him into the snow. As the deer lunged at Dad, I pointed my rifle and fired, luckily hitting the animal in the neck. The deer fell right onto Dad. If the shot had missed, there's no doubt that Dad would have been injured. Deer hunting was exciting, though. In the 1920s, the park boundary ran through the north end of Ragged Lake, which meant that technically much of the lake was located outside of the park and therefore open for hunting. It was not uncommon for some local peoples to maintain a hunting cabin in the area for spring and fall deer hunting expeditions. Adele Statton, daughter of Taylor Statton, founder of Camp Amick on Canoe Lake, recalled going on such an adventure when she was a young girl with her father. Often in the fall, our family would paddle to Crown Lake or to Ragged Lake to catch strings of trout and would stay overnight in an old lumber cabin that was along the way. It was often so cold that our hands would freeze in our mittens and we would return with them completely covered in ice. One year, when I was about 19 years old, I was invited along with neighbors Bill Hayhurst and Mary Northway on a deer hunting trip with my father and a guide named Ed Ryan. The plan was to run the deer through a portage where Mary and I were to shoot them as they passed by. It was cold that day, and after a while we got tired of waiting and were playing leapfrog to keep warm. Suddenly we heard the howls of the hounds and realized that our guns were way down the portage. We never got to them in time, but did see all the beautiful deer come bounding down the portage. We, of course, lost our reputations as hunters and were never invited back again with the men. However, I wasn't all that interested in shooting deer, so was never bothered much that I didn't get asked back. In terms of the longer-term impact of the deer hunt, Ralph Bice went on to share. A few years later, we had a very heavy winter, and there were accounts of deer dying on their feet. In summer, there were very heavy fires north of the park, and many of the park's deer moved north to fresh grasses that always followed fires. This meant that by 1925, the deer population in Algonquin started to decrease noticeably. Many blamed it on the deer hunt, which was not likely true, but either way, whether it was migration, disease, winter kill, or lack of feed, by the late 1920s, deer were scarce in Algonquin. The unfortunate backlash to so much government involvement in trapping in Algonquin Park and lack of awareness of the government regarding the hypocrisy of it all meant that many locals felt that they had a right to trap as well. As time went on, a sort of hero-worshipping went with it, and it looked to many that local communities were going out of their way to protect poachers. Recent work in 2009 by Quebec historian Darcy Ingram at the University Laval suggests that poachers were part of the hidden history of a conservation movement that tried and was eventually successful in criminalizing rural socio-economic strategies, including commercial and subsistence use of wildlife resources. He also mused that poaching also rested upon the surface of deep-rooted tensions over property and resource rights, apparent in the history of the conservation movement in the USA and Canada during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Others in this same report have suggested that male and female identities that were undergoing significant change during the late 19th and early 20th century may also have contributed. 
Victorian models of masculinity that included gentility, respectability, self-mastery, and restraint were giving way to more emphasis on the male body, athleticism, and on a rougher, less refined concept of middle-class male power. Images of frontier manliness became an established feature of a variety of popular cultural forms. Middle-class men in cities throughout eastern North America at the time were turning to wilderness regions as a means of escaping urban industrial woes and reconnecting with an idealized vision of the primitive male identity and the frontier environment. Whatever the academic perspectives now, what is known is that many rural inhabitants in both Ontario and Quebec saw their economic livelihoods threatened by both the loss of wilderness resources and by their increasing dependence on external market forces. As Ingram went on to describe in much detail, rural populations remained deeply resentful of efforts by those they considered to be outsiders to exert control over their activities. Governments and even private hunting club owners often found themselves pitted against men who continued to believe in their right to hunt and fish for subsistence and small-scale commercial use. Poachers challenged the attempts by middle-class men to make the use of fish and game conform to their expectations of its integration into a sports-based tertiary economy that only offered spin-offs for some local residents in the form of wage labor and a market for goods and services. Local governments also benefited financially through an array of leases, licenses, permits, and other fees, and often went to great lengths to rouse public opinion against poaching and in favor of the fish and game laws. They even went so far as to draw on a range of upper and middle class urban expectations regarding sport and fair play, as well as animal welfare, waste, cruelty, and gender. Many pushed the perception of poachers as cruel killers and associated them with cruelty, criminality, wasteful masculine brutality, and the uncivilized nature of commercial poaching. Frank McDougall certainly shared some of these views, which came through in speeches he would give both as park superintendent in the 1930s and later when he was promoted to deputy minister of lands and forests. McDougall's hope, of course, was that as the public became more enlightened, they would come to recognize how cruel and heartless trapping was, and eventually trappers would lose their status as romantic figures. In a 1941 speech, he categorized Algonquin Park poachers as being one of three kinds. First, there were loggers and sawmill employees, transitory road workers, tourists, and permanent residents who had a legitimate reason for being in the park. Some were even guides at the lodges in the summer. Next were dishonest rangers. Because the fines were the same for rangers or for outside poachers and generally practically free from interference, some rangers had the attitude that they were just as much entitled to beavers as the trappers. In response, McDougall suggested that penalties for park rangers, or wardens as he called them, should be five times that of outside poachers. The third class, he went on to say, were professional poachers. McDougall suggested that when these kinds of poachers got cornered, a poacher wouldn't hesitate to use firearms to threaten the ranger. It's not clear how much of this was actually true, although there was one article in the park's newsletter, The Raven, recounting the story of a gun-waving poacher. My personal belief was that much of the perceived violence was more likely urban legend, or perhaps an excuse to ameliorate rangers' often lack of success in catching poachers. 
Until the 1930s, when air patrols were introduced, the success rate in catching poachers was pretty low, and training a park ranger in how to do so took a long time. In 1934, McDougall noted that game protection is a profession that needs years of training before the man can know all the tricks of the poacher and counter them. In 1923, Mark Robinson's superintendent report noted six offenders were brought in and fines were imposed amounting to $357.45. 109 traps were brought in, with possibly as many more destroyed, and a quantity of raw furs were taken for the Department of Lands and Forests to dispose of in Toronto. It's hard to say if that was success or not. In her book, The King of Algonquin, Patton Lodge Lindsay quotes Emma Chartrand boasting with great pride in the late 1990s, I trapped the park for 60 years and I never got caught, although park records indicate that he was apprehended at least once. Every November, there was a fur sale at Minden near Halliburton. This meant that much of the fall trapping was done in October when a canoe could still be used. Ralph Bison along the trail recalls his father sharing his experience at the 1892 sale. What a wonderful sight it was to see all of the people coming down the Gull River in their canoes with their furs. They would set up their own little tents and then barter with the fur buyers the next day. According to those that knew, in certain locations in the park there were plenty of mink, marten, fisher, plus a few otters. A catch of 40 pelts was not uncommon and rumors had it that one poacher caught 92 mink one fall. As Ralph shared, he was trapping from his camp on Misty Lake. His line was from there over to the Pine River, upstream to High Falls, over to Butt Lake where he had another camp, and then south from there to Daisy Lake and then down the Petawawa to Misty again. Some poachers also trapped in the spring, when pelts were perceived to be of their finest quality. According to Ralph, trappers would leave home just as soon as the ice went out, and they figured they would be away for a month. Beaver, maybe a bear or two, otter and muskrat were the normal composition of the catch. Other years there would be just lots of mink and marten. Once my father's brothers, with only 30 traps between them, caught nearly 70 marten. There also seemed to be a pocket of fisher around Catfish Lake, and I remember one uncle telling me that one year somebody got a lynx, and the next year several people got lynx, but then the cycle ran out. Sometimes setting out was a community affair, as Ralph shared. Some years, 15 to 20 trappers would go in together and the first few nights camp together, everybody with their own tent and cooking fire. Most used small birch canoes with a minimum outfit, and when they got farther in on the big lakes, they would spread out and each would go to their own trapping grounds. If there was snow still around, occasionally one would have a hand sleigh on which they would put their bark canoe and their packs and other stuff that would go in the canoe. They would put the rope over their shoulders and travel for two or three days to get into where they wanted to trap. Trapping beaver was a fine art, with the idea being to drown the beaver as quickly as possible. This was because if a beaver doesn't drown quickly, they will chew through the leg that is in the trap, just like it was wood. This meant that when the trapper returned, all he would find was a paw or a part of a leg in the trap. As Joe Lavalli shared with Bernard Wicksteed in the 1940s, I used to use an ordinary steel spring trap, size number four, with jaws that opened to a diameter of about six inches. I would set this four inches underwater and attach a stone to it weighing about four pounds. I never used bait and I never took any special precautions as I needed to do with other animals to disguise the human smell. But as a refinement, sometimes 
he would make an artificial castoring place near the trap using castor from a previous kill. For those unaware, beavers mark out their territories using castor found in a sack under a mature beaver's tail that they mix with their own urine. Joe Lavalli, it seems, also had a pretty good sense of humor, although it's not clear that Wickstead understood when his leg was being pulled. He recounted in his book, Joe Lavalli and the Pale Face, that there were also two ways to catch a beaver by hand. The first was to put a net over the front door of the beaver house. Then one simply pulled the house down stick by stick until you reached the bedroom. At this point, the beaver would rush out and get caught in the net. Another method, he claimed, was to make several holes in the ice before pulling down the house. After staying underwater as long as they could, the beaver would put their heads through the holes in the ice to take a breath, at which point one could grab them. Tall tales, indeed. Having said all of this about poaching, there was one animal for which, until 1959, hunting was always open season, and that was the timber wolf, now known as the eastern wolf. Wolves were known for much of the first half of the 20th century as vermin. In 1894, James Wilson, the park superintendent of Queen Victoria Niagara Falls Park, wrote about a visit he'd made to Algonquin for an inspection in 1893. In his report, he said wolves were voracious hunters of all of the protected animals in the park and were the natural enemies of every desirable form of animal life, and a determined effort should be made to destroy them. As noted in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, Wilson recommended that action be was best taken during the winter when strychnine poison could be placed on deer carcasses on the frozen lakes. He also went on to say that no mercy be shown to other predators, including the fox and the black bear. His advice seems to have been duly followed, for year after year, superintendents commented on the wolf problem, hoping for more effective ways to kill them. As Frank McDougall shared in a 1941 speech, the wolf is the most hated of all the animals in the park. This creature survives despite everyone's hand against him, and in the face of modern extermination weapons such as the high-powered rifle, and in so doing shows wonderful powers of adaption. The wolf fills a place in a wildlife plan that is little understood as yet. From the little done so far, we know that often the wolf chases deer and has to give up the chase, proving the contention that a sound and healthy deer has a good chance of escape, even when hunted by a wolf pack, and that the wolf has to work for his food for the same as any other animal. Wolves follow a definite hunting plan and travel by night through swamps and by day over high hills. Wolves that were not poisoned by the rangers were shot or snared or trapped by a special permit. According to Mark Ranger Mark Robinson, writing in 1908, each ranger was authorized to take and destroy wolves as long as he remained on the park staff. In 1911, Park Superintendent George Bartlett wrote that wolves are seldom seen, and when you do catch a glimpse of them, it's generally at too great a distance for a shot, although a few have been killed in that way. Last season, 1910, our men made a determined effort to thin out their ranks and have had fairly good success, one bringing in six while another on the north end of the park killed ten. As mentioned in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, for six weeks in 1930, beginning in January, the permanent park rangers had support in their war on the wolf packs from 15 professional wolf hunters and additional trappers. The 32 special hunters killed only seven, whereas the park rangers killed 17. As McDougall said at the time, the idea was good, but the season possibly at its worst 
given that the snow crust was so heavy that snowshoes weren't snowshoes at all. This meant that the wolves could roam anywhere independent of their regular trails. 1917 was allegedly a peak year for wolves. According to Ralph Bice, they were not so plentiful near the railway, but later when we moved further in to hunt near McIntosh and Timberwolf, we found that there were wolves everywhere. The packs were not large. They ranged from singles to groups of five or six. None came very close, but there seemed to be many of them. As we were leaving to go home for Christmas, Dad planned to go on to Eagle Lake to set poisoned baits, which was the accepted way to take wolves then. It was a mild and wet day, so we walked from Mystery to Eagle Lake. The next day it turned cold. The snow fell after midnight, so it was fresh. On that walk to the railroad, we saw tracks of 52 wolves. As usual, there were singles, doubles, and groups of up to seven. In the late 1920s, it was recognized that the effects of using poison spread to other mammals and birds that also fed on the poisoned deer carcasses. This began the use of snares made of aircraft cable and later new kinds of snare wire that was much more effective after proper seasoning so that there was no human scent. But it wasn't until 1934 that questions started to be raised about the wolf policy. As that spring, there was a tremendous die-off of deer. The die-off was so extensive that it wasn't possible to blame the wolf alone. There had also been questions raised in the 1920s, but not voiced so adamantly. As Ralph Bice commented many years later, the fact remains that when we had our heaviest deer population, we also had our heaviest wolf population. If the wolves killed so many deer, how could the deer have increased to the numbers that were very much in evidence in the period that ended with the heavy winter of 1922-23? As I wrote in my book, Rock Lake Station, there were also lots of other wolf stories, including a number from Ranger Stuart Eady. One of his favorite stories that he liked to tell children was about the time he had to camp out for the night and could hear the wolves howling close by. He made a bed like a hammock in a tree and slept there until nearly morning. When he awoke, he heard a sound under the tree and looked down to see two wolves with the beaver, trying to get the beaver to cut down the tree. Stuart Eady's son, Art, also had many great memories of going out on patrol with his father. One story he recounted involved he and his father crossing Whitefish Lake. We saw three wolves away down the lake chasing a deer out onto the ice. By the time we got to that part of the lake, the wolves had killed the deer and run off. The deer was already half eaten. They would have finished eating it after we left. Another story that Art Eady remembers his father told frequently happened when Art was about 14 years old. One sunny winter afternoon, Stewart had taken a detour to check what he thought were some strange snowshoe tracks. Art had gone on ahead and was walking up Rock Lake across the ice, oblivious to the fact that four wolves were tracking his footprints. When Stuart, who was following far behind, came upon the wolf tracks, he was worried that the wolves may have killed and devoured his son. Luckily, the wolves had gotten sidetracked and discovered two deer that they cornered out on the ice. They had totally forgotten about Art. Stuart hadn't and was relieved when he came upon them eating the deer, not his son. Leaseholders on Cash Lake told stories of a half-tame wolf that used to hang out near the old museum in the 1970s. One summer it came to visit the Keens, who had a cottage on the lake and hung out for days and would look in the windows of their cabin. Another story in the mid-90s took place on a December morning when Layla Gamble and Jane Grey took a walk along the portage to the falls on Head Lake, 
with Jane's dog, Ivy. When they reached the falls, Ivy came running back, shivering after running off to explore something. Soon after, they saw a large gray wolf jump right onto the ice, which retreated when Ivy chased it. Then they heard the wolf howl, and then heard other howls in the distance on both sides of them. They headed back, but could hear the wolves closing in on them on both sides, which was very unsettling. Luckily, they made it across the portage without incident. Another story told is that Arthur Kenny claimed to have once met a wolf while both were walking on the railway bed. It trotted off just like that when it was told to. In 1939, J.R. Diamond, Smoke Lake leaseholder and professor of zoology at the University of Toronto, tried to convince the government that their obsessive pursuit of wolves was unnecessary. He reminded McDougall of a report by one of the park rangers who had spent a winter tracking wolves in the park. The report included observations about wolf habitat, such as the difference between day and night travel routes, hunting methods and size of packs, and the inability of wolves to always secure deer. This began to a change in thinking and led to speculation that perhaps wolves were a species to be protected, not destroyed. Alas, it wasn't until 1959, 20 years later, that some semblance of protection for wolves in the park occurred when government biologists started studying their behavior and ecology. Even more surprising is that it wasn't until 1972 that the Ontario government abolished the wolf bounty. But it was the public wolf howls that began in Algonquin in August of 1963 that triggered public interest in really protecting wolves. To the park naturalists' surprise, about 650 people and 200 or so of cars appeared at Lake of Two Rivers' picnic area to hear a park biologist give a talk on wolves. The group then set out on Algonquin Park's first ever wolf howl. They drove to a site near where researchers thought there were wolves present. On that occasion, though only a wolf howl from an individual wolf was heard in response to human imitations of a wolf, public interest was demonstrated. The continued popularity of the park-sponsored summer wolf howls show how far attitudes have really changed. As of this writing, hundreds of wolf howls involving thousands of participants have occurred in the decades since the first one in 1963. According to Ralph Bice in his book, Fur the trade that put Ontario on the map, though stricter regulations had been in place in Ontario for some time, it wasn't until 1945 that trappers and fur managers started to realize the importance of better cooperation and the value of fur management. Trappers realized that having an abundant and consistent supply of fur bearers mattered, and fur managers realized that trappers often had a much better knowledge of the biology and habits of fur bearers. They were also a valuable source of information, especially for program development. In the late 1940s, a system of registered trap lines was set up around Algonquin Park. According to Audrey Sanders' book, Algonquin Story, each trapper was given the opportunity to set forth his claims. He described which section of the country he considered to be his own trapping grounds. And after everyone had been given an opportunity to speak, the area was divided into zones and compromise boundaries marked out where necessary. From then on, only furs with official government tags could be sold to the fur buyers. This new system pretty well did away with the need or the urge to poach fur in the park. But there were still individual incidents well into the early 1950s. There were also incidents of illegal hunting of deer and moose, which, although diminished, continue even to this day. 
The only trapping done today is on some registered trap lines in the eastern and central parts of the park that have been held by the Algonquins of Ontario. I hope you've enjoyed these insights into the history of poaching in Algonquin Park. In the second half of this journey, we'll talk about what a poacher's life was like on the run and share several stories of their various escapades as reported by park rangers and others over the years.